Support for Breaking Walls is provided by our patrons. Become a show supporter at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. It's after 7 p.m. on Sunday, March 11th, 1888. We're on the roof of the Equitable Life Assurance Society building at 120 Broadway in Lower Manhattan. The movement you're hearing is coming from Sergeant Elias B. Dunn, New York City's chief weatherman. He's come up to the roof to take the temperature. At the time, the Weather Bureau kept in touch with the Coast Guard through telephone, telegraph, and carrier pigeons. Like other weather station chiefs, Dunn is linked to the 170 regular government weather stations all over the country. Sunday's forecast called for light rain. Ordinarily, no one manned the Bureau on Sundays, but during the afternoon, the early spring weather had suddenly and alarmingly taken a turn for the worse, with the temperature rapidly falling. Now what was thought to be a passing rain shower has turned into heavy sleet with almost gale force winds. After taking the temperature, Dunn rushes downstairs into the office below to worriedly telegraph the conditions to Washington, D.C. He'll get no response. All communication for New York with the outside world was gone. Overnight, the freezing rain turned to snow. By daybreak Monday morning, New York City was engulfed in a furious blizzard with winds as high as 85 miles per hour and temperature conditions still rapidly falling. People were trapped inside homes, places of business, or most dangerously, stuck out on the streets. The snow would continue with hurricane force until Tuesday evening, 48 hours after the storm began. In New York City, an estimated 200 people died. The reason the entire eastern seaboard lost contact during the Great Blizzard of 1888 overhead communication wires. Numerous telephone, telegraph, and electrical poles were destroyed. Their snapped, electrified wires created additional danger amidst the 40-foot snowdrifts. The highest snowdrift, 52 feet, was measured in Grayson, Brooklyn. In the aftermath, New York passed legislation necessitating all power lines be buried underground. This storm exasperated the need for reliable communication without wires. The previous year, German physicist Heinrich Hertz proved the existence of electromagnetic waves, first theorized in James Clerk Maxwell's electromagnetic theory of light. Hertz did so by setting up the first spark transmitter and receiver. The transmitter consisted of a Leiden jar that stored electricity and a coil of wire, the ends of which were left open so that a small gap was formed. 
The receiver was a similar coil on the other side of the room. When the jar was charged, electricity flew across the gap and was received on the other end. At first, these waves were nicknamed Hertzian waves. Today, they're called radio waves. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jack Benny talking and making my first appearance on the air professionally. By that I mean I'm finally getting paid, which of course will be a great... Instead of a big, ugly glass picture tube, you saw the performers in your own mind. You painted your own biggest-life version of each moment with that loving, creative brush we call imagination. Good evening. May I present my wife, Kathy? Good evening. Tonight is our opening night, and tonight is the first day of the new year, so we're going to do a comedy for you to start our new series. Something like a spray of confetti to go with the season. A story about a young man and his wife in 1953. Hello, you. Rita. You're looking well, Edward. So are you. Ask me in, darling. Oh, come here. The president of... Mutual Broadcasting and Competing Network sent a telegram to Paley saying, when radio distinguishes itself in this fashion, it is good for the entire industry, and we want to congratulate you and thank you. And, you know, it was given that kind of treatment. We of the Mercury reckon that a story doesn't have to appeal to the heart, it can also appeal to the spine. Sometimes you want your heart to be warm, sometimes you want your spine to tingle. Well, the tingling, it's to be hoped, will be quite audible as you listen tonight to a classic among radio thrillers. If I hadn't swerved, if I hadn't swerved, I'd have hit him. I almost did. Almost did hit him. I think there is something so special between the listener and the other side of the microphone in the studio. Very special. I don't feel I'm talking to two men now. I feel I'm talking to a whole world. All of the people that you have created for me because of what you're doing. But this is not a night of names, of personalities. Our names or any names are meaningless unless your names are added. Unless you join us. You, for whom the sacred rites were written. We were a family. It was a nucleus of people that you never grew away from. When I arrived, all of the WTIC people had started mm -hmm. and were working in New York and introduced me to different people and got me at least into some of the auditions. I verify this thing. I who have come a long distance to this table and must go far hence. I verify this thing. The brotherhood is not so wild a dream as those who profit by postponing it pretend. Take His Majesty's coat off. On our stage, we have a Hoffman pressing machine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. An expert operating the Hoffman pressing machine will press your trousers. Now, wait a Everything has gone over the airwaves. You know, it was sound, and everyone could imagine what a person looked like, mm -hmm. what a situation looked like in their own minds, by sound effects and by the person's voice. Ricky, why don't you have the rehearsal here? Hey, are you crazy? I got a 16-piece band. I'll blow the roof of the joints. 
Well, doesn't look like rain. It imposes on the actor the necessity to create everything, to create the sets, to create the costumes, to create the expressions, to create everything. And I think one of the great drawbacks of television is that so much of it is just sort of visualized radio shows where they ought to really write television shows. There were some very good actors among radio actors, actors who unfortunately never extended, when radio died, never did anything else. Perhaps they did not look, which was the big yeah. disadvantage, they did not look as they sounded, you see. I listened a while to the wheeling seagulls. All at once I realized that the wind had died, the Santa Ana had blown itself out. The red wind was done. It was over. I've always wondered why it had to be, but I guess that's it, there's just so many hours in the day. You know, I think perhaps this can be the most exciting interview we've conducted on the program because it's going to enable us to look ahead for the first time. Now, Radio Oath is coming back. The name of the show is... Welcome to Breaking Walls, Episode 75. My name is James Scully. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, I'd like to say welcome to the show, and thank you very much. Today on Breaking Walls, we're beginning a long-term story arc on the history of American network radio broadcasting, with a focus on American dramatic radio. What is dramatic radio? Well, prior to television, people tuned into the radio to hear their favorite comedies, thrillers, westerns, high-adventure dramas, soap operas, kids' shows, and melodramas, along with the talk, news, music, and sports that still dominates the airwaves today. Radio drama on the major networks of NBC, CBS, and ABC slowly went out in the 1950s because of the growth of television. And the story of this industry isn't widely known to the general American public. I'd like to change that. Thanks to the growth of podcasts, there's some life stirring in the world of scripted audio entertainment. I hope that going forward, Breaking Walls can add to this life. In order to tell the story of American radio drama, we're starting at the beginning of radio, before there was any programming to dramatize. As you heard on the prologue, Heinrich Hertz confirmed the existence of electromagnetic waves in 1887. This scientific discovery still has a huge impact in our lives today. Not only radio, but television, the internet, and cellular telephone reception all go back to this moment. On the prologue, you also heard Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune. It was played beautifully by Miss Elizabeth Hainan and arranged by David DePeters for vibraphone and harp. Miss Hainan's latest album, Home, Works for Solo Harp, is available on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and Pandora. You can find out more information about Miss Hainan at elizabethhainan.com. If you enjoyed this episode and believe in what will follow, I'd be grateful if you left an iTunes rating and review and tell your friends and loved ones. Word of mouth will help Breaking Walls grow. You can also support this show for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. And to keep easily abreast with the show, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. December 17, 1900, Ellis Island, New York. 
It's the main building's opening day, and the facility is already proving to be barely able to handle the float of immigrants. In the United States of America, the last 25 years of the 19th century were marked by wild economic fluctuations, depressions, government corruption, labor strife, corporate wealth, and a population boom. In 1860, the last year before the Civil War, roughly 31.5 million people lived in the U.S. By 1900, there were over 76 million people. Decade by decade, new immigrants entered the country. But in 1900, 60% of those 76 million people still lived in rural areas. Out in farming country, direct conversation and the written word were still the only two forms of communication. As the U.S. population grew, so did the need for the telegraph along with wireless telegraphy on trains and large ocean vessels. In 1880, Alexander Graham Bell patented the first wireless communication device called the photophone. It was essentially solar powered. It used a voice signal to modulate a light beam, then used a photoelectric cell to convert the light beam into electricity. This electricity could then power a conventional telephone. In 1882, Bell transmitted from a boat in the Potomac River near Washington, D.C. to other boats on shore. His results were unimpressive. He soon gave up the wireless game. However, the same year, Amos Dolbear, a physics professor at Tufts University in Boston, mistakenly came up with a wireless telephone design when he disconnected the telephone he had set up in his physics lab. To his surprise, he could hear sounds from across the room through the receiver. He learned that the current in the coil at the transmitter was conducting electricity towards the passive coil in the receiver. His electromagnetic induction was completing the circuit. Professor Dolbear then perfected his wireless telephone so that he could communicate between his home and lab, a third of a mile away. Dolbear used elevated aerial condensers, attaching them to both the transmitter and receiver of his telephone. He patented the discovery in March of 1886, but the device lacked any way to detect the radio frequency in the air. Communication was solely the result of induction. The next year, Heinrich Hertz proved James Clerk Maxwell's electromagnetic theory of light. This opened the door for Nikola Tesla to invent the Tesla coil in 1893. Tesla's coil used the Earth as a means of conduction. His alternators created high-frequency oscillations of up to 33,000 cycles, or hertz, per second. Tesla's coil was the forerunner to the high-frequency alternators used for continuous wave radio communication. We of the latter edge of the 19th century have become supercilious with regard to novelties in science, yet our languor may be stirred at the prospect of telegraphing through the air and wood and stone without so much as a copper wire to carry the message. We are learning to launch our winged words. The New York Times.
Today we know radio waves exist. It's a long proven phenomena. But in the 1880s, understanding radio technology required someone to believe invisible waves that flow through the air existed, then could carry an electrical charge in the form of sound, be received by an antenna, decoded, and made listenable by a receiving device. The public skepticism was understandable. After Heinrich Hertz proved the existence of these electromagnetic waves, both inventors and engineers began to work towards improving wireless transmission. Hertz's mechanism was crudely built and could only detect waves at a short distance. The first improvement, a receiver called a coherer, was designed by Oliver Lodge in 1894. Lodge was a British physicist at the University of Liverpool. He'd been working independently of and simultaneously with Hertz at proving Clerk Maxwell's theories. Rather than use metal rods to receive the waves, Lodge shaved the conducting metal into small bits. He used the theory that it would create a stronger resistance to the radio waves. The coherer was a six-inch long glass tube filled with iron shavings. When the iron shavings came into contact with electromagnetic waves, their resistance was greatly decreased. But when the coherer was jarred or tapped, the shavings would regain their high resistance. Lodge's improvements included what he called a trembler, or decoherer, which mechanically shook the shavings so they'd regain their resistance after being charged. Meanwhile, at the University of Bologna, August Rihi created a new spark gap, which consisted of four metal spheres. In 1895, Rihi's 21-year-old pupil, Guglielmo Marconi, introduced two key components that would transport the system from the laboratory into the commercial world. The first was a Morse key, which could now regulate the flow of electromagnetic waves into the device. And the second was called the Earthed Aerial. The idea obsessed me more and more, and I worked it out in imagination. I did not attempt any experiments until we returned to the Villa Griffoni in the autumn. But then two large rooms at the top of the house were set aside for me by my mother, and there I began experiments in earnest. Guglielmo Marconi was born on April 25, 1874 in Bologna, Italy. His father Giuseppe was an aristocratic landowner who managed a large estate. His mother Annie Jameson was of the Scotch-Irish Jameson family of brewers and distillers. Annie insisted her son speak both English and Italian fluently, a fact Guglielmo would be incredibly grateful for later when he avoided most Italian stereotypes in the press in both London and New York. As a child, Marconi liked to conduct experiments with machinery and electrical apparatuses. His mother encouraged him, even hiring a private physics tutor. At 13, Annie enrolled her son in the Technical Institute at the port city of Livorno. While there, Guglielmo learned how to read and write Morse code. As luck would have it, Professor August Rihi was a neighbor of Marconi, and when Guglielmo returned from Livorno in 1893, 
Annie pressed the professor to allow her son to sit in on his classes. In 1895, while Marconi was experimenting with the metal plates that were connected to the outside ends of the spark cap, he discovered the earthed aerial. He had hoped to replace Hertz's small plates with larger slabs of sheet iron, and elevating them above ground, he would obtain longer waves of greater distance. However, when Marconi temporarily placed one of the slabs on the ground while holding the other slab up in the air, he noticed a considerable increase in the strength of the received signals. This observation led him to make sure both the transmitter and receiver had a connection to the Earth, as well as to a vertical conductor, or earthed aerial. That was when I first saw a great new way open before me. Not a triumph. Triumph was far distant. But I understood in that moment that I was on a good road. My invention had taken life. I had made an important discovery. The new aerial helped him increase the distance of his signal to over three miles. Marconi transmitted the Morse code with the Morse key he also invented. It was suggested, since wireless was allied to the sea, it might be best that I go to England, where there was a greater shipping activity, and, of course, that was a logical place from which to attempt transatlantic signaling. Also, my mother's relatives in England were helpful to me. In February of 1896, Annie Jameson, who knew England was a country with a heavily maritime influence, suggested Guglielmo go there with his wireless invention. Soon Marconi transmitted wirelessly between ships 12 miles apart. The notoriety helped him secure investors. On July 20th, 1897, at the age of 23, and with 100,000 pounds, Marconi and his associates incorporated the Wireless Telegraph and Signal Company Limited. On March 28, 1899, Marconi successfully linked opposite shores of the English Channel. The message was reported to be as distinct as a telegram. Soon the company name was changed to Marconi's Wireless Telegraph Company LTD, and there was one place left for the 25-year-old inventor to go, the United States of America. In 1899, New York Herald publisher James Gordon Bennett Jr. offered Marconi $5,000 to cover the America's Cup yacht races for the Herald. As an old, and I believe, trusted friend of yours, let me tell you that the world is greatly improving all the time, in spite of all. Let this statement be an appropriate way for me to convey to you all, who are listening to these words, my sincere greetings and best wishes for your happiness and prosperity. James Gordon Bennett Sr. first published the New York Herald on May 6, 1835. The Herald's success was due partly to his many innovations, like the paper's ability to obtain the first exclusive one-on-one -on -one interview with the sitting president, Martin Van Buren, and because Bennett Sr. was a champion of Morse's telegraph and Edison's light bulb. In the late 1830s, Bennett Sr. pioneered the use of dispatch boats to intercept ships bringing news from Europe. He did this so the Herald would receive news hours before the steamers docked. 
When James Gordon Bennett Jr. took over in 1866, the paper moved into new offices on the side of Broadway and Ann Street. Below the street level were two immense cellars or vaults, which housed two steam engines of 35 horsepower each. Three immense printing presses were kept running constantly from midnight until 7 in the morning, printing the daily edition. Bennett Jr. then established the commercial cable company to expedite transatlantic communication even further. Competition over speedy news gathering was driving the technology, and by 1900, although a revolution had taken place in transportation and in communications, because deep Atlantic ship-to-shore communication was impossible, the two revolutions had not converged. Marconi proposed bridging the gap by sending Morse code through the air wirelessly. Wednesday, October 4th, 1899. All of New York is in the midst of a week-long celebration. The previous Saturday, a parade for Spanish-American war hero Admiral Dewey took place. The Admiral's triumphant return helped set the mood for Guglielmo. That Sunday, the Herald announced in bold headlines, Marconi will report the yacht races by his wireless system. The Herald emphasized the benefits of the invention. The Herald will thus prove a boon, not only to science, but to millions of persons who await with eagerness the result of a contest that has excited more interest than any in the history of America's Cup. The story included illustrations of the apparatus, the race course, the inventor, and assured its readers that wireless telegraphy was no longer a dream of the scientist, but an accomplished fact. Two steamships, the Ponce and the Grand Duchess, were equipped with wireless to transmit the race progress in two stations. One was at the Nave Sink Highlands in New Jersey, and the other on 34th Street in Manhattan at the paper's new offices in Herald Square. Thousands of people crowded onto excursion boats to follow the progress. Thousands more lined the coast of New Jersey, and still more blocked traffic at the Herald's office bulletin board. The eager audience awaited word. Marconi's wireless was a success. The Herald's late edition boasted. Signor Marconi enabled the public to follow every movement of the yachts from the start. There were loud hurrahs as messages came in and were placed on the bulletin board. Marconi later recalled that what impressed the public most was the rapidity of the system. In many cases, the public was less than 30 seconds behind the progress of the yachts. The press lauded Marconi as reserved, courteous, and even self-effacing. All the world admires this avant but it will accept a man of only moderate learning if he will create from the remnants of knowledge something for the immediate good of humanity. Electrical world. To fulfill this promise, wireless had to provide benefits to the lives of millions of people, not just to the richest hundreds. For the first time, ordinary people could potentially have the opportunity to know what was happening simultaneously in other parts of the world. Think of what this would mean, of the calling, which goes on every day from room to room in a house, and then think of that calling extending from pole to pole. Not a noisy babble, but a call audible to him and her who wants to hear, and absolutely silent to all others. It would be almost like a dreamland and a ghostland. Not the ghostland cultivated by heated imagination, but a real conversation from distance based on true physical laws. Century Magazine.
this time, Marconi's primary focus was single point-to-point -point communication in the form of Morse code dots and dashes. Wireless telegraphy promised to cut into the large-scale communications monopolies held in the U.S. by Western Union and Bell Telephone. Newspapers in the late 1800s were paying 10 cents per word, while private parties and businesses were paying a quarter per word for dispatches from London via cabled code. That decade, the New York Times quoted Professor Michael Pupin. The Western Union and postal companies are both using antiquated methods. The Western Union company does not spend 10 cents a year for experiments, so far as I can learn. As the year 1900 approached, the fervor for wireless communication was about to reach an all-time high. The time is coming, and very soon, too, when the country's leaders in music, science, and politics will no longer be content to give their best to, literally speaking, a mere handful of people within the confines of four walls. Indeed, they will demand, and rightly so, that they be heard by the people of every state, every city, and every town and hamlet, in railway trains and vessels on the high seas, in short, by millions instead of hundreds. Papa, Papa, New York, 1900. The sound of the not-yet-awake Lower East Side. You're hearing an enterprising boy named David Sarnoff. He wants to make sure he's the first paperboy to collect the morning edition. His family has just emigrated to New York from an isolated Russian village where he'd spoke only Yiddish and Russian, and his only book was the Torah. Now, although only nine years old, he sees a chance to grow in this city of almost four million people. And after his father contracted tuberculosis, he spent as much time working as he did in school. Six years later, he's here on Wall Street, walking to work with a mass of AM commuters. He'd recently been fired by the commercial cable company for taking a day off on Rosh Hashanah. But today, he's about to begin his first day of work for his new employer. Please. Take the elevator behind you, Mr. Sarnoff. Good morning. What floor? Three, please. First day, huh? <laughs> well, good luck, kid. David Sarnoff is to have one of the most forward-thinking and serendipitous careers in radio history. A program for all America. Brought to you by New Green Comet Cleanser. The only cleanser fortified with chlorinol. 
Comet bleaches out stains, wipes out germs as no other leading cleanser can. Get new Comet. And Crest Toothpaste with Floristan. And now here he is, Mr. This Is Your Life himself, Ralph Edwards. Good evening and welcome to This Is Your Life, everybody. I'm standing in our TV control room here in California. And uh, here in my hand is the first radio tube, the miracle seed from which sprang the entire mighty structure of radio and television, sonar, radar, talking pictures, guided missiles, automation, the electric brain computer and long-distance telephone communication. This tube was the creation of one great man who at this moment is seated on our stage. Now, he did not hear or see our regular opening to our program. He believes he's here to appear uh, on a special program of NBC's Department of Special Events. Now, Bob Warren is ready to make this great man believe that we are just now switching this special program to California. So please cue Bob Warren. Well, ladies and gentlemen of the television audience, I'm happy to introduce one of the greatest inventors who ever lived, Dr. Lee DeForest. Guglielmo Marconi's success at the America's Cup races in October of 1899 helped catch the attention of inventors Reginald Fessenden and Lee DeForest. In 1899, wireless reception was still erratic, with no way to tune, and a maximum transmission distance of only 35 miles. Marconi's transmitter worked on one frequency. Only one transmitter could signal in a given area of time. The crude spark device sent out intermittent waves as the energy rose and fell. Marconi wanted to improve ship-to-ship -ship messaging and wanted his waves to be private. In 1900, he hired John Ambrose Fleming, a scientist with a long career who'd worked for James Clerk Maxwell and who was also a professor of electrical engineering at University College in London. Unwittingly, I had discovered an invisible empire of the air, intangible yet solid as granite, whose structure shall persist while man inhabits the planet. Lee DeForest. Lee DeForest had once wanted to work for Guglielmo Marconi, but his employment attempt was rebuffed and a short time after, DeForest struck out on his own. By 1900, using a spark coil transmitter and his responder receiver, DeForest was able to wirelessly transmit for about four miles. More importantly, it improved reception and allowed him to transmit about 35 Morse code words per minute, over 20 more than Marconi's coherer. For Marconi, many of the old problems with wireless persisted. Despite vast improvements, messages were still not secret and compared to cable operations, the transmission was slow and reception haphazard. In 1901, DeForest was sent to New York. He challenged Marconi to compete for top speed in relaying race results at the 1901 America's Cup. Marconi was scheduled to cover the 1901 races for the Associated Press. DeForest, eager to gain the spotlight, persuaded Charles Seidler former mayor of Jersey City, to advance him $1,000 to support his demonstrations. DeForest also secured a contract with the AP's rival, the Publishers Press Association. The races took place only a few weeks after President McKinley was assassinated. The mood was vastly different from only two years before. 
Crowds of onlookers gathered around the shore nearby. Both men's ships raced out to the waters to catch the best viewing of the race. They took their places, jockeying for position. Marconi system, DeForest system. They were both turned on and tuned in. But because the wireless systems operated on the same wavelength, they jammed each other and neither transmission worked. In addition, a third unidentified transmitter began broadcasting with no apparent other purpose than to throw a wrench into the communications. The third party was the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, whose goal was to embarrass Marconi. Its operator periodically leaned on the key, making transmission and reception impossible. The key to overtaking the cable business was transatlantic wireless reception. So Marconi established a station in County Wexford, Ireland in 1901 to act as a link between Cornwall, England and County Galway. On November 27th, he sailed from England to Newfoundland. Marconi downplayed his trip, claiming he was going to conduct some experiments on ship-to-shore transmission. He was, in fact, attempting to leave his competitors behind once and for all. Back in 1897, Oliver Lodge had studied selective resonance. Lodge discovered that by adding matched induction coils to both his wireless transmitter and receiver, he could tune into different frequencies. Marconi took Lodge's finding and quadrupled the sensitivity by using four induction coils on each part. The tuning improvement was patented in England as number 7777. Can you hear anything, Mr. Kemp? Three dots, Mr. Marconi. I can hear them. They're faint, but I can hear them. On December 12, 1901, at 12.30 p.m., a single letter S was received at Marconi's base at St. John's, Newfoundland. He used a 500-foot kite-supported antenna for reception. The distance between the two ports was about 2,200 miles. Here is nothing but space! A pole with a pendant wire on one side of a broad, curving ocean. An uncertain kit struggling in the air, and thought passing between them. Ray Steinard Baker, McClure's Magazine. Its results were considered with skepticism by the scientific community. The clicks were reported to have been heard faintly and sporadically. There was no independent confirmation of the reported reception, and the transmissions were difficult to distinguish from atmospheric noise. Marconi did later prove reception of up to 1,550 miles, and audio reception of up to 2,100 miles. The press heralded this achievement. So extraordinary is this achievement that had it been claimed by any other man than Marconi, doubts might well have been expressed. But the invariable modesty and unusual conservatism of the inventor have satisfied the world. Scientific American, 1902. In 1902, Marconi patented an improvement on the receiving system, the magnetic detector. Since messages were unrecorded, the magnetic detector included headphones, which meant that an operator had to be standing by at all times in order to receive the message. 
As a result, transmitting at predetermined times became very important. By then, Marconi Wireless had negotiated contracts with several steamship companies, including the Cunard, as well as both the Italian and English Royal Navy. Marconi's singular belief in point-to-point -point wireless seemed to be proven correct. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? A gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow! In 1901, the United States of America experienced one of its greatest bull markets in history. An unprecedented 3 million shares changed hands in one day. Newspapers published stories anticipating wireless telegraphy's limitless commercial potential. This bull market, and the media that covered it, highlighted the many rags-to-riches stories that were sweeping the nation. It led into the belief that any one American could become rich and famous. Abraham White was a speculator and supposed entrepreneur who would later be charged with fraud. In January of 1902, White formed the DeForest Wireless Telegraphy Company in New Jersey with a $1 million stock offering. He would be the president, and DeForest would be the vice president and scientific director. White's plan involved circulating elaborate stock brochures, generating publicity through press releases, building wireless stations, making elaborate claims, and selling stocks to anyone who would buy. DeForest regarded White as the friend of a hundred lifetimes. It's fine fishing weather now that the oil fields have played out. Wireless is the bait to use at present. May we stock out string before the wind veers and sucker shoals are swept out to sea. Lee DeForest. The public did bite. In February of 1903, the DeForest Wireless Telegraph Company was incorporated in Maine, absorbing the New Jersey Company and offering $3 million in stock. Nine months later, White created the American DeForest Wireless Telegraph Company, this time with a $5 million stock offering. In 1904, he increased the capitalization to $15 million. Shares were sold at $7.50 each. White controlled most of the money, and DeForest was paid a modest $30 per week. White ordered stations to be built not to transmit, but to sell stock. In Atlanta, 
He built a station for $3,000 and sold $50,000 worth of stock, only for the site to be abandoned without ever sending a telegram. However, DeForest Wireless did enjoy some success. There were stations in New York City, Coney Island, Atlantic City, Buffalo, Cleveland, North Carolina, and Chicago. In July of 1904, DeForest secured a contract to erect long-distance stations at Panama, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Pensacola, and Key West. When Louis came home through the flat, he hung up his coat and his hat. St. Louis, 1904. It's the centennial celebration of the Louisiana Purchase, and in its honor, there's a World's Fair. Here, the DeForest Company reached its zenith. DeForest supervised the construction of a 300-foot steel tower, the tallest structure at the fair, with his name in large letters attached to the side. Dozens of light bulbs surrounding each letter created a globe that could be seen from any place on the grounds. DeForest would spend the summer happily transmitting and living at the top. He ordered a cot to be placed in his transmitting area and would survey the magical scene beneath on summer nights. A bright day has at last broken, and the tall mountain has not this time vanished like a dream. Unfortunately for DeForest, his incredibly public persona at the St. Louis World Fair gave rise to detractors and those who challenged his inventions. In early 1903, DeForest had visited the laboratory of Reginald Fessenden in Virginia and found his rival to be using an electrolytic detector consisting of two thin wires immersed in acid. At DeForest's laboratory, he and assistant Clifford Babcock developed what they called the spade detector consisting of two flat platinum wires sealed in a glass tube with only their extreme surfaces dipped in a small cup of sulfuric acid. Later, in competition with the Fessenden system for lucrative naval contracts, the DeForest Company sold its spade detector at prices far below those of its rival. Fessenden sued. In 1906, a federal judge in Vermont denied the DeForest Company use of the spade detector and assessed damages for the infringement. To protect his assets, Abraham White sent DeForest to Canada under the guise of waiting for the heat to blow over. In the meantime, White created the United Wireless Telegraph Company and transferred himself all of the company assets and none of the liabilities of American DeForest. In the process, Fessenden was frozen out of the damages he was rewarded, and DeForest was frozen out of the new company completely. I am daily more disgusted with the man and this newly revealed side of his character. I will never be intimately connected with him again. White cleaned DeForest out, seeing to it that he only received $1,000 in severance, and then half of that went to lawyer's fees. He took all of DeForest's patents, save for the ones that he deemed worthless. A new method of detecting wireless waves through a three-element electronic amplifying incandescent electric tube valve. DeForest called it the Audion. Although badly beaten and embarrassed, DeForest publicly showed the invention for the first time on October 26, 1906. He claimed the tube was a receiver for wireless telegraphy that, because of its steady waves, could broadcast human voices. In December of that year, DeForest took out a patent. Although he received it, he was once again beaten to the punch by Reginald Fessenden.
all our civilization is based on invention. Before invention, men lived on fruits and nuts and slept in caves. Reginald Fessenden Reginald Fessenden was a Canadian professor and engineer who by the time of his death held claim to over 500 patents, second in number to only Thomas Edison. In 1900, he wanted to find a way to transmit and receive human voices. He began experimenting with continuous wave transmissions. This led to the perfection of the arc transmitter. He also developed the alternator, which is similar to today's alternating current, or AM. He used a higher frequency and eliminated the need for spark gaps. The professor worked at refining his discoveries for six years. On Christmas Eve in 1906, the same year that David Sarnoff began working for Marconi, and the same month that DeForest applied for his Audion patent, Fessenden became the first person to broadcast voice and music from his transmitter at Brant Rock, Massachusetts with a live violin serenade of Oh Holy Night. This is Reginald Fessenden. I would like to say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men of goodwill. Merry Christmas to all. Will those who have heard these words and music please write to Reginald Fessenden, Brand Rock, Massachusetts. We will speak to you again on New Year's Eve. DeForest was unfazed. He spoke about the Audion and early wireless broadcasting at the 1939 World's Fair in New York. In that same laboratory many months earlier, I conceived and tested the first three-electrode vacuum tube. This grid tube, which is, we had recently christened the Audion, would amplify telephone currents. I remember as if it were yesterday, that summer afternoon in 1907, when music was first sent out by radiophone. In 1907, when the idea of radio broadcasting first occurred, and again in 1910, when the voices of Metropolitan Opera singers Caruso and Martin were for the first time launched upon the ether, and again in 16, when for the first time regular radio concerts were maintained from my old station at High Bridge in the Bronx, there continued to dawn a widening vision of the astonishing potentialities of the radio broadcast, which vision the last 19 years have been bringing more and more into reality. But I confess that in those pioneer days, my eager imagination fell far short of picturing the astonishing hold with which this idea so suddenly gripped our entire nation. On January 20th, 1910, live from the stage of the Metropolitan Opera House, legendary tenor Enrico Caruso sang into a microphone connected to a 500-watt transmitter. It sent a sound to receivers placed at the Inventors Park Avenue Laboratory. It was the first broadcast from a concert hall. Three years prior, inventor G.W. Picard discovered that minerals made an excellent detector. He invented the effective and inexpensive crystal detector. This made the availability of wireless receivers more widespread. DeForest Broadcast was picked up by 50 or so invited listeners, as well as ship operators and radio enthusiasts that happened to have their wireless sets tuned to that frequency. I look forward to the day when opera will be brought into every home, 
Someday the news and even advertising will be sent out over the wireless telephone. Unfortunately for DeForest, financial troubles forced him to sell his patents to AT&T for $500,000. The decision made by AT&T was thought to be foolish at the time, but later proved to be the investment that made the company. As impressive as the work of Fessenden and DeForest was at transmitting voices, Marconi's Morse code point-to-point -point communication was still the main method for which wireless was being used. Today, wireless joins two worlds. The New York Times, October 17, 1907. By 1905, the first distress messages were sent via wireless telegraph from an American vessel to a receiving station on shore. Marconi continued to focus on increasing the distance of wireless reception and the perfection of tuning. In 1907, after six years of work, Marconi established a daily 8 to 8 schedule for transatlantic wireless service. The New York Times hailed it as a monumental achievement. Marconi charged the press five cents per word and all other customers 10 cents. The New York Times published a Marconi transatlantic wireless dispatch section in its Sunday paper. However, the previous year, Marconi Company's gross earnings were only $55,000. They averaged 70 messages per day, still far less than the cable companies. Wireless was still seen as a luxury. At the same time, the government was beginning to take an active interest in wireless transmission. There was a question as to who should control wireless, big business, the government, or the many small ham radio operators that had given the medium its life in the first place. Over the next two years, bills were introduced to regulate wireless. None passed. Should wireless be controlled by few or by many? The general public's fear of government control of the medium overrode signal interference frustrations. A House of Representatives report stated, if the use of wireless is not to be regulated, it may in the future result in disaster. The first hundred thousand, that was harder to get. But afterwards, it was easy to make more. John Jacob Astor. April 14th, 1912. 375 miles south of Newfoundland, on board the RMS Titanic. At 11.40 p.m., lookout Frederick Fleet spotted an iceberg immediately ahead. He alerted the bridge. First Officer William Murdoch ordered the ship to be steered around the obstacle and the engines to be stopped. But it was too late. The vessel suffered a glancing blow that buckled her right side and opened up five of her 16 compartments to the sea. While not ripped in one continuous tear, the impact snapped off and popped open many iron rivets, creating narrow gaps through which water flooded. 
There were an estimated 2,224 passengers and crew members on board. The Titanic was carrying only enough lifeboats for 1,200 people. The ship began to flood immediately. Water was pouring in at an estimated rate of seven long tons per second, 15 times faster than what could be pumped out. Because the ship's boilers were still full of hot high-pressure steam, there was a substantial risk that they would explode if they came into contact with the cold seawater flooding the boiler rooms. The stokers and firemen were ordered to reduce the fires and vent the boilers, sending great quantities of steam up the tunnel venting pipes. They were waist-deep in freezing water by the time they finished their work. Each bulkhead could be sealed by watertight doors. The engine rooms and boiler rooms on the top deck had vertically closing doors that could be controlled remotely from the bridge, lowered automatically by a float if water was present, or closed manually by the crew. These took about 30 seconds to close. The Titanic had suffered damage to the four-peak tank, the three forward holes, and number six boiler room. It was a total of five compartments. The ship had been designed to stay afloat with four of her forward compartments flooded, but no more the crew soon realized that the ship would sink. Within 45 minutes of the collision, at least 13,500 long tons of water had entered the ship. Alarm bells were ringing. A commotion of surging human energy was heard. Crew members shot the stress flares and took to the Marconi wireless transmission device that had been installed on board. Jack Phillips, one of the ship's wireless operators, began frantically sending distress signals. Operators at the Marconi station at Cape Race received the news almost immediately, as did two other liners, the Parisian and the Virginia, who were unfortunately 12 hours away. The only nearby ship to receive the call was the RMS Carpathia. That happened by a fluke. Its operator, Harold Cottam, had finished his work for the evening, but had returned to the wireless room to verify a time check with another ship. Had he not been there, no one nearby would have heard a distress signal until morning. This was a consequence of not having a loudspeaker, worker shifts, or a distress alarm for a sleeping operator. The Carpathia was 58 miles from the Titanic when arrived at the scene three and a half hours later. It could only rescue those in the lifeboats. The nearest ship, the California, was less than 20 miles from the Titanic, but the California's only wireless operator was asleep when the Titanic broadcast its distress calls. Another ship, a freighter, the Lena, was within 30 miles of the Titanic, but not equipped with wireless telegraphy. By 1.20, the seriousness of the situation was now apparent to every passenger above decks. They began saying their goodbyes, with husbands escorting their wives and children to the lifeboats. Distress flares were fired every few minutes to attract the attention of any ships nearby. And the radio operators repeatedly sent the distress signal, CQD. Radio operator Harold Bride suggested to his colleague Jack Phillips that he should use the new SOS signal, as it may be the last chance you have to send it. At 1.30 a.m. on the morning of April 15th, the Titanic's downward angle in the water was increasing. Dire situation could be heard in the tone of the messages sent from the ship by Marconi operator Jack Phillips. 125, we are putting the women on the lifeboats. 135, engine room getting flooded. 145, engine room full up to the boilers. 
that was the Titanic's last intelligible signal. It was sent as the ship's electrical system began to fail. Subsequent messages were jumbled and broken. John Jacob Astor IV was a passenger on the ship. At 1.55, he saw his wife Madeline off to safety. But even though 20 of the 60 seats aboard were unoccupied, he was refused entry to the lifeboat. A sign of the chaos and disorder as seats were being saved for women and children. The last lifeboat to be launched left at 2.05 with 27 people on board. At this point, the sea had reached the boat deck and the forecastle was deep underwater. Veteran Captain Edward Smith carried out the final tour of the deck, telling the radio operators and other crew members, now it's every man for himself. At about 2.15, the Titanic's angle in the water began to increase rapidly as water poured into previously unflooded parts of the ship. Her suddenly increasing angle caused what one survivor called a giant wave to wash along the ship, sweeping many people into the sea. Marconi Jr. operator Harold Bride managed to escape at the last possible moment. Eyewitnesses saw the Titanic stem rising high into the air as the ship tilted down into the water. Many survivors described the great noise. One passenger, Lawrence Beasley, described it as partly a groan, partly a rattle, and partly a smash, as it was not a sudden roar as an explosion would be. It went on successively for some seconds, possibly 15 to 20. After another minute, the ship's lights flickered once and then permanently went out. It plunged the Titanic into darkness. Another passenger, Jack Thayer, recalled seeing groups of 1,500 people clinging in clusters or bunches like swarming bees, only to fall in masses, pairs, or singly as the great after part of the ship, 250 feet of it, rose into the sky. Shortly after the lights went out, the vessel tore in two, rotating on its surface. The Titanic disappeared from view at 2.20 a.m. on the morning of April 15th, two hours and 40 minutes after striking the iceberg. Jack Thayer reported, with the deadened noise of the bursting of her last few gallant bulkheads, she slid quietly away from us into the sea. Those in the lifeboats were horrified to hear the sounds of what Lawrence Beasley called every possible emotion of human fear, despair, agony, fierce resentment, and blind anger mingled. I am certain of those with notes of infinite surprise, as though each one were saying, how is it possible that this awful thing is happening to me, that I should be caught in this death trap? Their cries came as a thunderbolt. Unexpected, inconceivable, incredible. No one in any of the boats standing off a few hundred yards away can have escaped the paralyzing shock of knowing that so short a distance away, a tragedy, unbelievable in its magnitude, was being enacted, which we, helpless, could in no way avert or diminish. Lucy Lady Duff Gordon, a British fashion designer who was a passenger on the ship, recalled, The very last cry was that of a man who had been calling loudly, My God, my God, my God. He cried in a dull, hopeless way. For an entire hour there had been an awful chorus of shrieks, gradually dying into a hopeless moan, until this last cry that I speak of. Then, all was silent. More than 1,500 people died that night, including poor cabin boys and girls, and the richest man in America, John Jacob Astor IV. 
Like the democratic nature of wireless telegraphy, death came equally for the Titanic's passengers. In the aftermath of the disaster, the U.S. government passed the Radio Act of 1912. It mandated that all radio stations in the U.S. be licensed by the federal government, as well as mandating that seagoing vessels continuously monitor distress frequencies. No longer would amateur operators be able to freely transmit wireless telegraphy. It represented a watershed moment, the point after which all individual exploration of wireless would diminish and corporate management and exploitation in close collaboration with the government would increase. On the evening of April 14th, the 21-year-old Marconi operator at the wireless station inside the Wanamaker department store on Ninth Street and Broadway in New York stayed on duty to relay distress signals without a break. He was already a telegraph manager, but his active duty helped him receive a promotion to chief inspector and contracts manager for a company whose revenue was about to swell after the just-passed radio act. The young man was David Sarnoff, and he would go on to tell this story hundreds of times. There was just one problem. None of it was true. But that didn't stop Sarnoff from using it to build his career. I have in mind a plan of development which would make radio a household utility in the same sense as the piano or phonograph. The idea is to bring music into the house by wireless. The receiver can be designed in the form of a simple radio music box and arranged for several different wavelengths, which should be changeable with the throwing of a single switch or pressing of a single button. There should be no difficulty in receiving music perfectly when transmitted within a radius of 25 to 50 miles. Within such a radius, there reside hundreds of thousands of families. And as all can simultaneously receive from a single transmitter, there would be no question of obtaining sufficiently loud signals to make the performance enjoyable. The same principle can be extended to numerous other fields, as, for example, receiving lectures at home, which can be made perfectly audible. Also, events of national importance can be simultaneously announced and received. Baseball scores can be transmitted in the air by the use of one set installed at the polo grounds. While well, I have indicated a few of the most probable fields of usefulness for such a device, yet there are numerous other fields to which the principle can be extended. Sarnoff sent this supposed memo to his boss, Edward J. Nally, who dismissed it. War had come to Europe. When I introduced Herbert Hoover, he was at the Duquesne Club in Pittsburgh, made a talk soliciting funds for Belgian relief work. Well, the plan is particularly aimed to economic relief. Yet the economic relief means the swinging of men's minds from fear to confidence, the swinging of nations from the apprehension of disorder and of governmental collapse toward hope and confidence in the future. Next time on Breaking Walls, we introduce a future president of the United States 
who was primarily responsible for the growth and regulation of wireless telegraphy and early broadcasting in the 1910s, and tell the story of how the Secretary of Commerce became the father of radio broadcasting. Featured in today's cast were Samantha DeGracia, Olga Lysenko, Justin Peel, Nancy Pop, Fernando Sanabria, William Shallert, and John Stevenson. Today's introduction music of Claire de Lune was arranged for harp and vibraphone by David DePeters and played by Miss Elizabeth Hainan. You can pick up her album, Home, Works for Solo Harp, on iTunes and Amazon, and listen on Spotify and Pandora. Her website is elizabethhainan.com, and she's on YouTube at Elizabeth Hainan Harp. The reading material used in today's episode was Inventing American Broadcasting, 1899-1922 by Susan J. Douglas Empire of the Air by Tom Lewis The Pictorial History of Radio's First 75 Years by B. Eric Rhodes Hello Everybody, The Dawn of American Radio by Anthony Rudell and The Network by Scott Woolley I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. That thank you also extends to the late Les Tremaine and Jack Brown for their wonderful 1986 documentary series, Please Stand By, A History of Radio. The interview clips in today's open were courtesy of Chuck Shaden, whose interviews can be found at speakingofradio.com, and Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran, for their WTIC Golden Age of Radio program. These interviews can be heard at goldenage-wtic.org. Episode 76 of Breaking Walls will spotlight the radio industry in the wake of the Titanic disaster. To listen to this episode, please go to www.thewallbreakers.com or search for Breaking Walls everywhere you get your podcasts. You can also support this show for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. And to keep easily abreast with the show, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. So, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls Episode 75, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. <laughs>